Chapter 22 Harding arrested Exton early the next morning. Joel heard about it from Fitch as they crossed the green on their way toward the cathedral for Joe's inception. Joel's mother held to his arm as if afraid some beast were going to appear out of nowhere and snatch him away. He arrested Exton? Joel demanded. It doesn't make sense. Well, um, Fitch said, murder rarely makes sense. I can see why you might be shocked. Exton was a friend of mine, too. And yet he never did like rhythmatists, ever since he was expelled. But he came back to work here. Those who have intense hatred often are fascinated by the thing they detest, Fitch said. You saw that drawing at Charles's house, the man with the bowler and the cane? It looks an awful lot like Exton. It looks like a lot of people, Joel said. Half the men in the city wear bowlers and carry canes. It was a small chalk sketch. They can't use that as proof. Exton knew where all of the arithmetist children lived, Fitch said. He had access to their records. Joel fell silent. They were fairly good arguments. But Exton? Grumbling yet good-natured Exton? Don't worry about it, son, his mother said. If he's innocent, I'm sure the courts will determine that. You need to be ready. If you're going to be incepted, you should be focused on the master. No, Joel said. I want to talk to Harding. My inception... It couldn't wait. Not again. But this was important. Where is he? They found Harding directing a squad of police officers who were searching through the campus office. Principal York stood a distance off, seeming very dissatisfied, a weeping Florence beside him. She waved to Joel. Joel, she called. Tell them what madness this is. Exton would never hurt anyone. He was such a dear. The police officer at her side quieted her. He was apparently questioning both her and the principal. Inspector Harding stood at the office doorway, looking through some notes. He looked up as Joel approached. Ah, he said, the young hero. Shouldn't you be somewhere, lad? Actually, as I consider it, you should have an escort. I'll send a few soldiers with you to the chapel. Is all of that really necessary? Fitch asked. I mean, since you have someone in custody. I'm afraid it is necessary, Harding said. Every good investigator knows that you don't stop searching just because you make an arrest. We won't be done until we know who Exton was working with and where he hid the bodies, er, where he is keeping the children. Joel's mother paled at that last comment. Inspector, Joel said, can I talk to you alone for a moment? Harding nodded, walking with Joel a short distance. Are you sure you have the right man, Inspector? Joel asked. I don't arrest a man unless I'm sure, son. Exton saved me last night. No, lad, Fitch said. He saved himself. Do you know why he got expelled from the arithmetic program thirty years ago? Joel shook his head. Because he couldn't control his chocklings, Harding said. He was too much of a danger to send to Nebraska. You saw how wiggly those chocklings were. 
They didn't have form or shape because they were drawn so poorly. Exton set them against you, but he couldn't really control them. And so when you led them back against him, he had no choice but to lock them out. I don't believe it, Joel said. Harding, this is wrong. I know he didn't like rhythmatists, but that's not enough of a reason to arrest a man. Half of the people in the aisles seem to hate them these days. Did Exton come to your aid immediately? Harding asked. Last night? No, Joel said, remembering his fall and Exton's screaming. He was just scared. And he did help eventually. Inspector, I know Exton. He wouldn't do something like this. The minds of killers are strange things, Joel, Harding said. Often people are shocked or surprised that people they know could turn out to be such monsters. This is confidential information, but we found items belonging to the three missing students in Exton's desk. You did? Joel asked. Yes, Harding said. And pages and pages of ranting anger about rhythmatists in his room. Hatred, talk of, well, unpleasant things. I've seen it before in The Obsessed. It's always the ones you don't expect. Pitch tipped me off about the clerk a few days back. Something reminded him that Exton had once attended Armidius. The census records, Joel said. I was there when Fitch remembered. Ah, oh, yes, Harding said. Well, I now wish I'd been more quick to listen to the professor. I began investigating Exton quietly, but I didn't move quickly enough. I only put the pieces together when you were attacked last night. Because of the wiggly lines? Joel asked. No, actually, Harding said. Because of what happened yesterday afternoon in the office. You were there, talking to Fitch, and he praised how much of a help you'd been to the process of finding the scribbler. Well, when I heard you'd been attacked, my mind started working. Who would have a motive to kill you? Only someone who knew how valuable you were to Fitch's work. Exton overheard that, son. He must have been afraid that you'd connect him to the new rhythmatic line. He probably saw the line when your father was working on it. Your father approached the principal for funding to help him discover how the line worked. It wasn't until some of my men searched his quarters and his desk that we found the truly disturbing evidence, though. Joel shook his head. Exton. Could it actually have been him? The realization that it could have been someone so close, someone he knew and understood, was almost as troubling as the attack. Things belonging to the three students in his desk, Joel thought, cold. The objects. Maybe he had them for, I don't know, reasons relating to the case? Had he gathered them from the students' dorms to send to their families? York says he ordered nothing of the sort, Harding said. No questions remain except for the locations of the children. I won't lie to you, lad. I think they're probably dead, buried somewhere. We'll have to interrogate Exton to find the answers. This is disgraceful business, all of it. I feel terrible that it happened on my watch. I don't know what the ramifications will be either. The son of a night senator dead... A man Principal York hired responsible? Joel nodded numbly. He didn't buy it, 
not completely. Something was off. But he needed time to think about it. Exton, he said, when will he be tried? Cases like these take months, Harding said. It won't be for a while, but we'll need you as a witness. You're going to keep the campus on lockdown? Harding nodded. For at least another week, with a careful eye on all of the arithmetist's students. Like I said, an arrest is no reason to get sloppy. Then I have time, Joel thought. Exton won't be tried for a while, and the campus is still safe. If it ever was. That seemed enough for now. Joel was exhausted, worn thin, and he still had his inception to deal with. He would do that, then maybe have time to think, figure out what was wrong with all of this. I have a request of you, Joel said. My friend Melody, I want her to attend my inception. Will you let her out of the lockdown for today? Is she that red-headed troublemaker? Harding asked. Joel nodded, grimacing slightly. Well, for you, all right, Harding said. He spoke to a couple of soldiers who rushed off to fetch her. Joel waited, feeling terrible for Exton sitting in jail. Potentially becoming arithmetist is important, Joel thought. I have to go through with this. If I'm one of them, my words will hold more weight. Soldiers eventually returned with Melody, her red hair starkly visible in the distance. When she got close, she ran toward him. Joel nodded to Harding and walked over to meet her. You, she said, pointing, are in serious trouble. What? Joel asked. You went on an adventure. You nearly got killed. You fought Chalklings. And you didn't invite me. He rolled his eyes. Honestly, she said, that was terribly thoughtless of you. What good is having friends if they don't put you in mortal peril every once in a while? You might even call it tragic, Joel said, smiling wanly and joining his mother and Professor Fitch. Nah, Melody said. I'm thinking I need a new word. Tragic just doesn't have the effect it once did. What do you think of appalling? Might work, Joel said. Shall we go then? The others nodded, and they again began walking toward the campus gates, accompanied by several of Harding's guards. I guess I'm happy you're all right, Melody said. News of what happened is all over the rhythmatic dorm. Most of the others are red in the face, thinking that the puzzle was solved and they were saved by a non-rhythmatist. Of course, half of the red-facedness is probably because none of us can leave yet. Yeah, Joel said. Harding's a careful guy. I think he knows what he's doing. You believe him then? Melody said. About Exton, I mean? Things belonging to each of the students, Joel thought. And pages of rants about wanting revenge against them. They walked the same path Joel had run the night before, terrified in the dark, approaching the soldiers. I don't know, he said. Joel remembered much of what Father Stewart said from the last time he'd gone through an inception ceremony. He'd been less nervous that time. Perhaps he'd been too young to realize what he was getting himself into. Joel's knees ached as he knelt in a white robe before Father Stewart, 
who sprinkled him with water and anointed him with oil. They had to go through the whole ceremony again if Joel wanted to enter the chamber of inception. Why did everything have to happen at once? He was still fatigued from lack of sleep, and he couldn't stop thinking about Exton. The man had seemed truly frightened. But he would have been if his own chalklings had come back to attack him. Joel felt like he had been swept up in something so much larger than he was. There were new arithmetic lines. He'd solved his father's quest, yet wouldn't get paid for it. All of his father's contracts of patronage had expired when no line had been produced within five years. Still, the world would be shaken by the discovery of a rhythmic pattern that was so different from the others. Father Stewart intoned something in Old English, barely recognizable to Joel as from Scripture. Above, the apostles turned their springwork heads. To his right, down a hallway, pre-Saint Euclid stood inside a mural dedicated to the triangle. Joel was about to be one of the oldest non-converts to ever go through the inception ceremony. The world seemed to be becoming a more uncertain place. The disappearances, probably deaths, of Armidius students made the islands bristle, and there was talk of another civil war. The realities of world politics were starting to seem more and more real to Joel, more and more frightening. Life wasn't simple. It never had been simple. He just hadn't known. But how does Nalazar play into all of this, Joel thought? I still don't trust that man. Exton had expressed dislike of Nalazar on several occasions, but perhaps it was something to think about. Could he have framed Exton? Perhaps Joel just wanted to find that Nalazar was doing something nefarious. Father Stewart stopped talking. Joel blinked, realizing he hadn't been paying attention. He looked up, and Father Stewart nodded, his thin white beard shaking. He gestured toward the chamber of inception behind the altar. Joel stood up. Fitch, his mother, and Melody sat alone on the benches. The regular inception ceremony for the eight-year-olds wouldn't come for another hour yet. The broad, vast cathedral hall sparkled with the light of stained-glass windows and delicate murals. Joel walked quietly around the altar toward the boxy chamber. The door was set with a six-point circle. Joel regarded it, then fished the coin out of his pocket and held it up. The main gear moving inside had six teeth. The center of each tooth corresponded to the location of one of the six points. The smaller gear to the right had only four teeth. The one to the left, nine teeth, spaced unevenly. The three clicked together in a pattern, one that had to be perfectly attuned to work with the irregular nine-tooth gear. Huh, Joel thought, tucking the coin in his pocket. Then he pushed open the door. Inside he found a white marble room containing a cushion for kneeling and a small altar made from a marble block topped by a cushion to rest his elbows on. There didn't seem to be anything else in the room, though a springwork lantern shone quite brightly from above, mounted in a crystalline casing so that it cast sparkling light on the walls. Joel stood, waiting, heart thumping. Nothing happened. Hesitantly, he knelt down, but didn't know what to say. There was another piece in this whole puzzle. 
Was there really a master up there in heaven? People like Mary Rowlandson, the colonist he'd read about the night before, believed in God. The wild chocklings hadn't killed her. They'd kept her prisoner, always stopping her from fleeing. Nobody knew their motives for such an act. She'd eventually escaped, partially due to the efforts of her husband and some other colonial men. Had her survival been directed by the master, or had it been simple luck? What did Joel believe? I don't know what to say, Joel said. I figure that if you are there, you'll be angry if I claim to believe when I don't. The truth is, I'm not sure I don't believe either. You might be there. I hope you are, I guess. Either way, I do want to be arithmetist, even with all of the problems it will cause. I... I need the power to fight them. I don't want to run again. I'll be a good arithmetist. I know the defense is better than almost anyone else on campus. I'll defend the Isles at Nebraska. I will serve. Just let me be arithmetist. Nothing happened. Joel stood. Most people went in and came out quickly, so he figured that there was no point in waiting around. Either he'd be able to draw the lines when he left, or he wouldn't. He turned to leave. Something stood in the room behind him. He jumped, stumbling back, almost falling over the small altar. The thing behind him was a brilliant white. It stood as high as Joel did, and was in the shape of a man, but a very thin one, with spindly arms and only a curved line for a head. It held what appeared to be a crude bow in one hand. The thing looked as if it had been drawn, but it didn't stick to the walls or floors like a chalkling. Its form was primitive, like the ancient drawings one might find on the side of a cliff. Suddenly, Joel remembered the story he'd read from before, the tale of the explorer who had found a canyon where the drawings danced. It didn't move. Joel hesitantly leaned to the side and could see that the thing almost disappeared when looked at from that angle. Joel leaned back to look at it from the front. What would it do? He took a hesitant step forward, reaching out. He paused, then touched the thing. It shook violently, then fell to the ground, pasting itself to the floor like a chalk drawing. Joel stumbled back as the thing shot away underneath the altar. Joel dropped to his knees, noticing a slit at the base of the altar. There was darkness beyond. No, Joel whispered, reaching out. Please, come back. He knelt there for the better part of an hour. A knock finally came at the far door. He opened it and found Father Stewart standing outside. Come, child, he said. The others needing inception will arrive soon. Whatever has happened has happened, and we shall see the result. He held out a piece of chalk. Joel left the chamber feeling shocked and confused. He took the chalk numbly, walking over to a stone placed on the ground for the purpose of drawing. He knelt down. Melody, Fitch, and his mother approached. Joel drew a line of forbiddance on the top of the block. Melody reached out with an anxious hand. 
but Joel knew what would happen. Her hand passed through the plane above the line. Her face fell. Father Stewart looked troubled. Well, son, it appears that the master has other plans for you. In his name I pronounce you a full member of the Church of the Monarch. He hesitated. Do not see this as a failure. Go, and the master will lead you to the path he has chosen. It was the same thing that Stuart had told Joel eight years ago. No, Melody said. This isn't right. It was supposed to, supposed to be different this time. It's all right, Joel said, standing. He felt so tired, with a crushing sense of defeat on top of that, making it difficult for him to breathe. Mostly, he just wanted to be alone. He turned and walked slowly from the cathedral and back toward campus. Rhythmatics Diagram, The Taylor Defense Often called the impossible defense, the Taylor is one of the most difficult known defenses because of its dependence upon not one, but two nine-point circles. It has been argued that this is the most powerful defense in all of rhythmatics. The Taylor uses two circles, one inside the other. Each of the nine outer bind points has two Marx cross structures attached in sequence. The arithmetist must have expert skill to get the two main circles perfectly concentric. Otherwise, the lines of forbiddance spearing outward will not pass through bind points on the outer circles. This defense is controversial in regular duels because of the two circles. It is allowed, but if the outer circle is breached, that is considered a loss. Note the use of external forbiddance lines to use in bouncing lines of vigor. The tailor is very good at focusing enemy fire and chalklings into open corridors between the outer circles. The large number of defensive chalklings bound to the small circle's bind points makes this a very difficult defense to defeat. However, the arithmetist drawing it must be very fast. Chapter 23 Joel slept through most of the day, but didn't try to go to bed that night. He sat up at his father's table, a springwork lantern whirring on the wall behind him. He'd cleaned the books off the table, making way for his father's old notes and annotations, which he'd placed alongside a few pieces of the man's best chalk. The notes and diagrams seemed unimportant. The mystery had been solved. The problems were over. Joel wasn't arithmetist. He'd failed his father. Stop that, he told himself. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. He wanted to throw the table over and scream. He wanted to break the pieces of chalk, then grind them to dust. Why had he dared hope? He'd known that very few people get chosen. So much about life was disappointment. He often wondered how humankind endured so long, and if the moments when things went right really made up for all the rest. This was how it ended. Joel, back where he had begun, the same as before. He'd done too poorly in his classes to earn himself further education once he was done with Armedius. 
Now he didn't even have the slight buried hope that he might find a way to be a arithmetist. The three students who had been taken were dead, gone, left in unmarked graves by Exton. The killer had been stopped, but what did that mean to the families who had lost children? Their pain would continue. He leaned forward. Why? he asked of the papers and notes. Why does everything turn out like this? His father's work would be forgotten in the light of Exton's horrible deeds. The clerk would be remembered as a murderer, but also as the man who had finally solved the mystery of a new arithmetic line. How? Joel thought. How did he solve that mystery? How did Exton, a man who failed his classes, discover things that no arithmetic scholar has been able to? Joel stood up, pacing back and forth. His father's notes continued to confront him, seeming to shine in the light of the lantern. Joel walked over, digging through them, trying to find the very oldest of the notes. He came up with a yellowed piece of paper, browning on one edge. I traveled again to the fronts of Nebraska and discovered very little. Men speak of strange happenings all the time, but they never seem to occur when I am there. I remain convinced that there are other lines. I need to know what they do before I can determine anything else. The page had a drawn symbol at the bottom, the line of silencing, with its four loops. Where, Joel asked, where did you get this, father? How did you discover it? At Nebraska? If that had been the case, then others would know about it. Surely the arithmetists on the battlefront, if they saw lines like these, would intuit their meaning. And who would draw them? Wild chalklings didn't draw lines. Did they? Joel put the sheet aside, looking through his father's log, trying to date when he'd written that particular passage. The last date on the log was the day before his father had died. It listed Nebraska as the location of that trip. Joel sat down, thinking about that. He flipped back to the very first dates of travel. A visit to the island of Zona Arida. Zona Arida, near Bonneville and Texas. They were all southwestern islands. Joel's father had gone there several times, according to the logs. Joel frowned, then glanced at the books on the floor. One was the one that Nalazar had checked out about further arithmetic lines. Joel picked it up and opened it to the back, looking at the stamped card that listed the book's history. The volume had only been checked out a couple of times over the years. Joel's father was one of the first on the list. His father's first visit to Zona Arida had come only a few weeks after he had checked out the book. Joel flipped open the volume, scanning the chapter lists. One was called Historical New Line Theories. He flipped to that one, skimming the contents by the light of a single lantern. It took several hours to find what he wanted. Some early explorers, the book read, reported strange designs upon the cliffs of these islands in the southwest. We cannot know who created them since much of America was uninhabited at the time of European arrival. Some have claimed that lines drawn after these patterns have rhythmatic properties. Most scholars dismiss this. Many odd shapes can be drawn and gain chalkling life from a line of making. That does not make them a new line. Joel turned the next page. 
There, facing him, was a sketch of the very creature he'd seen in the Chamber of Inception earlier that day. What is going on here? Joel thought, reading the caption to the picture. It read, One of the many sketches made by Captain Estevez during his explorations of Zona Arida Island. Joel blinked, then looked back at his table. Something tapped at his window. He yelped, jumping up out of his chair. He reached for the bucket of acid he'd taken from Inspector Harding, but then saw what was on the other side of the window. Red hair, wide eyes. Melody grinned at him, waving. Joel checked the clock. It was two in the morning. He groaned, walking out, then climbing the steps to open the dormitory door, which was locked. Melody stood outside. Her skirt was scuffed, and there were twigs in her hair. Melody, he said, what are you doing here? Standing in the cold, she said. Aren't you going to invite a lady in? I don't know if it would be proper. She pushed her way in anyway, walking down to the workroom. Joel sighed, closing the door and following her. Inside, she turned to him, hands on hips. This, she said, is appalling. What, he asked. It really doesn't work as well as the word tragic, does it? She flopped down into a chair. I need a different word. Do you know what time it is? I'm annoyed, she said, ignoring his question. They've had us locked up all day. You're an insomniac. I figured I'd come bug you. You snuck past the guards? Out the window. Second story. There's a tree close by. Harder to climb down than it looks. You're lucky the soldiers didn't catch you. Nah, she said. They aren't there. What? Oh, there are a couple at the main door, she said. But only those two. The ones that patrolled below the windows left a short time ago. Guess they changed shift or something. Anyway, that's not important. Joel, the important thing is this tragedy I'm trying to tell you about. You being locked up? That, she said. And Exton being locked up. He didn't do it, Joel. I know he didn't. The guy gave me half of his sandwich once. That's a reason for him not being a murderer? It's more than that, Melody said. He's a nice man. He grumbles a lot, but I like him. He has a kind heart. He's also smart. The person doing this was smart. Exactly. Why would Exton attack the son of a night senator? That's a stupid move for him if he wanted to remain inconspicuous. That's the part of this that doesn't make sense. We should be asking why. Why attack Charles? If we knew that, I'll bet the real motive for all of this would come together. Joel sat thoughtfully. Harding has evidence against Exton, Joel said. So? So, Joel said, that's usually what proves that a person is guilty. I don't believe it, Melody said. Look, if Exton got kicked out of here all those years ago, then how in the world was he a good enough arithmetist to create a line nobody else knew of? Yeah, I know. He stood. Come on, he said, walking out the door. Melody followed. Where are we going? Professor Fitch's office, Joel said, crossing the dark campus. They walked in silence for a time before Joel noticed it. Where are the police patrols? I don't know, Melody said. See, I told you. Joel hastened his step. They reached Warding Hall, then rushed up the stairs. 
Joel pounded on the door for a while, and eventually a very groggy Professor Fitch answered the door. Ahem. Professor, Joel said, I think something's going on. Fitch yawned. What time is it? Early, Joel said. Look, Professor, you saw the lines that were intended to trap me? The cage of lines of forbiddance that Exton supposedly drew? Yes, Fitch asked. How well were the lines drawn? They were good, expertly straight. Professor, Joel said, I saw lines that Exton drew at the door. They weren't shaped right. He did a terrible job. So he was trying to fool you, Joel? No, Joel said. He was afraid for his life. I saw it in his eyes. He wouldn't have drawn poor lines in that case. Professor, what if Nalazar- Joel, Fitch snapped. I'm tired of your fixation on Professor Nalazar. I, well, I hate raising my voice, but I'm just fed up. You wake me up at awful hours talking about Nalazar? He didn't do it, no matter how badly you want him to have. Joel fell silent. Fitch rubbed his eyes. I don't mean to be testy. It's just, well, talk to me in the morning. With that and a yawn, Fitch closed the door. Great, Melody said. He's not good with lack of sleep, Joel said. Never has been. So what now? Melody asked. Let's go talk to the soldiers at the front of your dormitory, Joel said, rushing down the stairs. See why the others aren't on their patrol. They crossed the campus again in the dark, and Joel began to wish he'd brought that bucket of acid with him. But surely Harding's men would. He pulled up short. The arithmetic student dormitory was straight ahead, and the door was open. Two forms lay on the grass in front of it. Dusts, Joel said, pelting forward, Melody at his side. The forms proved to be the soldiers. Joel checked the pulse of the first one with nervous fingers. Alive, Joel said, but unconscious. He moved over to the other one, finding that he was still alive as well. Ah, uh, Joel, Melody said. You remember what I said this morning about being angry for you at not inviting me to be attacked with you? Yeah. I completely take that back. Joel looked up at the open doorway. Light reflected distantly inside. Go for help, he said. Where? The front gates, he said. The office, I don't know. Just find it. I'm going to find out who's inside. Joel, you're not arithmetist. What can you do? People could be dying in their melody. I'm arithmetist. If the scribbler really is in there, Joel said, it won't matter which of us goes in. Your lines will be little defense against him. Go. Melody stood for a moment, then bolted away at a dash. Joel looked at the open doorway. What am I doing? He gritted his teeth, slipping inside. At the corner, he found some buckets of acid, and he felt more confident carrying one as he snuck up the stairs. Boys were on the first floor with girls on the second, some families of professors on the third. There were hall mothers stationed on the second floor to keep watch. If Joel could find one of them, perhaps they could help. He rounded the top of the stairs on the second floor, slipping into the hallway. It appeared empty. He heard something on the stairs behind him. He looked with a panic to see something coming down from the third floor, moving in the darkness there. Barely thinking, 
Joel hefted his bucket of acid and tossed it. The something turned out to be a person. The wave of acid completely drenched the surprised Nalazar. The professor gasped, rubbing his eyes, and Joel yelped, scrambling away down the second-floor hallway. In his panicked mind, he thought to make for Melody's room, where he could use the aforementioned tree to climb away. He heard Nalazar follow, cursing. Joel smacked straight into something invisible. It threw him backward to the ground, stunned. The hallway was barely lit, and he hadn't seen the line of forbiddens on the ground. Foolish child, Nalazar said, grabbing him by the shoulder. Joel yelled and punched as hard as he could at Nalazar's gut. Nalazar grunted but didn't let go. Instead, he stuck his foot out, scraping it along the ground. It left a chalk line behind it. Chalk on the bottom tip of the shoe, Joel thought. Good idea. Hard to draw straight lines, but good idea. Nalazar shoved Joel to the floor, then finished a box of forbiddens around him. Joel groaned at the pain in his arm. Nalazar had a powerful grip. Trapped. Joel cried out, feeling at the invisible box. It was solid. Idiot, Nalazar said, wiping his face with a dry section of his coat. If you live this night, you're going to owe me a new coat. The professor's skin looked irritated from the acid, and his eyes were bloodshot. The acid used wasn't powerful enough to be truly dangerous to a person, however. I, Nalazar said. One of the doors in the hallway opened and interrupted him. Nalazar spun as a large figure stepped out into the hallway. Joel could just barely make out the face in the dim light. Inspector Harding. Nalazar stood for a moment, dripping acid. He glanced at Joel, then back at Harding. So, Nalazar said to Harding, it is you. I've tracked you down at last. Harding stood still. In the shadowed light, his domed police officer's hat looked an awful lot like a bowler. He lowered his rifle, resting his hand on the butt, the tip against the ground, like a cane. His hat was pulled down over his eyes so that Joel couldn't see them. Joel could see the inspector's ghastly grin. Harding opened his mouth, tipping his head back. A swarm of squirming chucklings flooded out of his mouth like a torrent, scurrying down his chest and across his body. Nalazar cursed, dropping to his knees and drawing a circle around himself. Joel watched as Nalazar completed the eastern defense with quick, careful strokes. Harding, Joel thought. He said there was a federal police station near Lily Whiting's house, and he said he was on patrol in the very area where Herman Leibel was taken. Harding claimed that the scribbler was taunting him by striking so close. And then Charles Calloway. While we were investigating Charles's house, Harding mentioned that he'd been there the very evening before, trying to get the family to send their son back to Armedius. When Harding charged to the gates after being called on the night I was attacked, he came from the east, from the direction of the general campus, not the rhythmatic one. He'd been over there controlling the chalklings. Exton wasn't the only one in the room who heard Professor Fitch say how important I was. Harding was there, too. Dusts. Joel screamed for help, slamming his fists against the invisible barrier. It all made sense. Why attack the students outside campus? Why take the son of the night senator? To inspire panic. To make the arithmetic students all congregate at Armedius rather than staying at their homes. Harding had secured the campus, 
brought all of the arithmetists here, including the half who normally lived far away, and had locked them in the dorms. That way, he had them all together and could take them in one strike. Joel continued to pound uselessly at the walls of his invisible prison. He yelled, but as soon as his voice reached a certain decibel, the excess vanished. He glanced to the side and there saw one of the lines of silencing, hidden against the white of the painted wall. It was far enough away that it only sucked in his voice when he yelled, not when he spoke normally. Joel cursed, falling to his knees. Harding dismissed the line of forbiddance in the hallway, the one Joel had run into, and the multitude of chalklings swarmed forward and surrounded Professor Nalazar, attacking his defenses. The man worked quickly, reaching out of his circle and drawing lines of vigor to shoot off pieces of chalklings. That didn't seem to have much effect. The formless chalklings just grew the pieces back. Joel pushed at the base of his prison, looking for the place that felt the weakest. He found a section that Nalazar had drawn with his foot that pushed back with less strength. The chalk there wasn't as straight. Joel licked his finger and began to rub at the base of the line. It was a poor tactic. Lines of forbiddance were the strongest of the four. He could only rub at the side, carefully wearing away the line bit by bit. It was a process that the books said could take hours. Nalazar was not faring well. Though he'd drawn a brilliant defense, there were just so many chalklings. Inspector Harding stood shadowed in the darkness. He barely seemed to move, just a smiling dark statue. His arm moved, the rest of him completely still. He lowered the tip of his rifle, and Joel could see a bit of chalk taped to it. Harding drew a line of vigor on the ground. Only it wasn't a line of vigor. It was too sharp. Instead of curves, it had jagged tips. Like the second new rhythmatic line they had found at Lily Whiting's house. Joel had almost forgotten about that one. This new line shot forward like a line of vigor, punching through several of Harding's own chalklings before hitting the defenses. Nalazar cursed, reaching forward to draw a curve and repair the piece that had been blown away. His sleeve dripped acid. That acid fell right on his circle, making a hole in it. Nalazar stared at the hole, and the chalklings shied away from the acid. Then one threw itself at the drop, getting dissolved. Another followed. That diluted the acid, for the next one that touched the acid didn't vanish. It began attacking the sides of the hole the acid had made. You're making a mistake, Nalazar said, looking up at Harding. Harding drew another jagged line. This one shot through the hole, hitting Nalazar and throwing him backward. Joel gaped. It's a line of vigor that can affect more than chalk, he realized. That's, that's amazing. The scribbled, shifting chalklings withdrew. Nalazar lay in the middle of his circle, unconscious. Harding smiled, eyes shadowed, then walked to the next door in the hallway, one just to Joel's right. Harding pushed it open, and Joel could see young women slumbering in the beds inside. Wild chalklings swarmed in behind Harding and flooded the room. Joel screamed, but the line of silencing stole his voice. One of the girls stirred, sitting up. The chalklings crawled over her, swarming her body. Her mouth opened wide, but no sound came out. Another line of silencing hung on the wall there, drawn to keep sound from waking the other students. Joel could only watch, banging against his invisible wall as the girl shook and writhed, a group of chalklings climbing into her mouth as she tried to scream. They pinched at her skin, causing pinpricks of blood. 
More and more of them crawled into her mouth. She didn't stop shaking. She shook and shook, spasming, falling to the floor and rolling as if she seemed to shrink and flatten. Her figure began to waver. Joel watched, horrified. Soon the girl was indistinguishable from the other scribbled chalklings. Harding watched with a broad grin, showing teeth, his eyes lost in shadow. Why, Joel demanded of him, what is going on? Harding made no reply as his chalklings took the other girls in the room. One by one, two other girls were consumed and transformed. The awful sight made Joel look away. The chalklings that had been dissolved in the acid were reforming, pulling themselves out of the pool and coming back to life. Harding moved to the next room, passing Joel. He opened the door and stepped inside, and Joel could see a line of silencing had already been drawn on the door. Harding had probably done them all first. The scribbled chalklings flooded the hallway behind Harding, then disappeared into the room. Joel felt sick, thinking of the girls sleeping inside. He dropped to his knees and continued scratching at his line, trying to get through. He wasn't doing much. A chalkling suddenly moved in front of him and began to attack the line. Joel jumped back, grabbing his coin and trying to use it to ward the creature away. It ignored both him and the coin. It was at that moment that Joel realized the chalkling was a unicorn. He glanced to the side where a face peeked around the corner ahead of him, farther down the hallway. Melody drew another unicorn, sending it to help the first. Joel stepped back, amazed at how quickly the unicorn made holes in Nalazar's line. She really is good with those, Joel thought as they broke through a large enough section for him to squeeze past. Sweating, he dashed to her. Melody, he whispered. As long as he didn't yell, the lines of silencing wouldn't steal his voice. The sound wouldn't carry far enough, he guessed, to hit the lines and activate them. Joel, she said, something's very wrong. There aren't any soldiers at the gates or at the office. I tried pounding on the doors of the professors, but nobody answered. Is that Professor Nalazar on the ground? Yes, Joel said. Melody, come on, we... You defeated him, she said with surprise, standing. No, I think I was wrong about him, Joel said urgently. We need to... Harding stepped out of the room and looked toward them. He was between them and the way to the stairwell. Melody screamed, but most of it dampened, and Joel cursed, pulling her after him. Together, they scrambled farther down the hallway. The dormitory hallway was a square with rooms on the inside and out. If they could go all the way around, they could get to the stairs. Melody ran beside him, then suddenly yanked him to the side. My room, she said, pointing. Out the window. Joel nodded. She threw open the door, and they were confronted by chalklings crawling in the open window, moving across the walls like a flood of white spiders. Harding had sent them around the outside of the building. Joel cursed, slamming the door as Melody screamed again. This scream was dampened less than the others. They were getting away from the lines of silencing. Chalklings crawled under the door. Others scurried down the hallway from Harding's direction. Joel pulled Melody toward the stairs, but froze as he saw another group of chalklings coming from that direction. They were surrounded. Oh, dusts, oh, dusts, oh, dusts, Melody said. She fell to her knees and drew a circle around them, then added a square of forbiddance around it. We're doomed. We're going to die. Harding rounded the corner. He was a dark silhouette, stepping quietly, not speaking. 
He stopped as the chalklings began to work on Melody's square. Then he reached up and twisted the key on the nearby lantern, bringing light to the hallway. He seemed even more twisted by the half-light than he had in the dimness. Talk to me, Joel said. Harding, you're my friend. Why are you doing this? What happened to you out there in Nebraska? Harding began to draw one of his modified lines of vigor on the floor. Melody's square had failed, and the chalklings were starting to work on her circle. They squirmed and shook, as if anticipating biting into Joel's and Melody's flesh. Suddenly, a voice rang in the hallway, clear, angry. You will leave them alone! Harding turned toward a figure standing in an open, rhythmic coat at the other end of the hallway, holding a piece of chalk in each hand. Professor Fitch. Federal Police Diagram Joel's Sketch of the Rhythmatic Dorm's Second Floor That Night At the top right, Stairs. At the top center hallway, Nalazar. Down the left side hallway, from top to bottom, Fitch, Harding, Joel, and Melody. At the bottom hallway, Maze drawn in chalk on the ground. Gap left for escape. Another gap filled by Joel's line. Apartment rooms surround the hallways on both sides. Chapter 24 Professor Fitch was shaking. Joel could see that even from the distance. The flood of chalklings turned away from Joel and Melody and rushed toward him. Harding raised his rifle. Fitch dropped to his knees and drew a line of forbiddance on the floor. There was a loud click and a rush of air as the rifle fired. The bullet shot through the hallway, then hit the line's wall and froze a few inches from Fitch's head. The bullet lost its momentum and was pushed back and away. It hit the floor with a clink. Harding let out his first sound then, a roar of anger. It was quieted by the lines of silencing. Still, it was loud enough to make Fitch waver, and he looked up, eyes widening in fear, hesitating. Then he looked at Joel and Melody, trapped in their failing circle. Fitch's jaw set, and his hands stopped shaking. He looked down at the flood of chalklings approaching him, and reached out with both hands to snap his chalk to the ground on either side of him. Then he drew. Joel stood up straight, watching with awe as Fitch spun about, using his chalk to dry two lines of warding, one inside the other, both as perfect as Joel had ever seen. Fitch added smaller circles on the outside, one after another in rapid succession, one hand drawing each circle even as the other drew a line of forbiddance inside each one as an anchor. The tailored defense. Professor, Joel whispered. The defense was perfect, majestic. I knew you could do it. Yeah, Joel, Melody said. Hello, pay attention. We need to get out of here. She knelt down, using her chalk to dismiss the line of warding around them. No, Joel said. He looked down at her. Melody, those chalklings aren't natural. Fitch can't fight them. They can't be destroyed. We need to help him. How? Joel looked back. Dismiss the rest of those lines around us. As she did so, Joel knelt down, taking a piece of blue chalk out of his coat pocket. Hey, you started carrying some, Melody exclaimed. My father's chalk, Joel said, sketching out a long, rectangular maze pattern on the floor. Go draw this in the corridor there. Make it as long as you can, 
and leave this little section open on the side and at the far end. She nodded, then moved over to begin drawing. Joel took his chalk and closed off the hole she left open. What good will that do? She asked, drawing urgently. You'll see, Joel said, spinning back toward Harding and Fitch. Fitch drew furiously and was faring far better than Nalazar had. He had managed to enclose a couple of the scribbler's chalklings within boxes, trapping them. Unfortunately, his outer defenses were nearly eaten away. He wouldn't last long like this. Joel gave Melody as much time as he dared. Then he yelled, Hey, Harding! The inspector turned. Wednesday night, Joel said. You tried to kill me. Now is your chance. Because if you don't, I'm going to go get help and... He cut off, yelping. Apparently Harding didn't need any encouragement for a good third of his chalklings, began scrambling back down the hallway toward Joel and Melody, taking some of the pressure off the beleaguered Fitch. Joel turned and dashed down the hallway. Melody had drawn quickly, and while her lines weren't perfectly straight, they would do. Joel entered the long corridor of chalk she'd made with lines of forbiddance to either side of him, then wove through the short maze of lines. As he'd expected, the chalklings piled in after him. They could have gotten through to Melody if they'd known that the section of lines that Joel had drawn wasn't rhythmic. But just like before, chalklings seemed as fooled by a fake line as a human might be, at least at first. Joel burst through the hole in the end of the small maze. Close it! Melody did so, blocking the chalklings. The things immediately turned around to escape back out the front of the maze. Come on, Joel said, running. Melody at his side. They raced the chalklings, who had to weave through turns to get to the end. Joel and Melody passed through the gap where he had drawn a non-rhythmatic line, then Melody closed off the entrance to the maze. She stood, puffing, the chalklings inside shaking angrily. They began to attack the walls. Joel turned around. Melody, he said. Another group of chalklings had broken off from Professor Fitch and were heading toward him and Melody. She yelped, drawing a line across the corridor, then down the sides of the wall to protect her and Joel. That trapped them again. Harding left the second batch of chalklings there, chewing on the line blocking Joel and Melody from the combat. That's all we can do, Professor, Joel called, just quiet enough that the lines of silencing had no effect. Then more softly, he added, Come on. Fitch drew with a look of intense concentration on his face. Every time he seemed to waver, he glanced up at Melody and Joel, surrounded by chalklings. His face grew more determined, and he continued his work. Harding, the scribbler, growled, then began launching his enhanced lines of vigor at Fitch. The professor drew expert lines of forbiddance to not just block, but deflect the lines of vigor. Joel watched, breathing quickly, following Fitch's moves as Melody shored up their defense, drawing reinforcing lines where the chalklings looked like they might be close to getting through. Come on, Joel repeated. You can do it. Fitch worked furiously, drawing with both hands. His defense was expert. He coaxed the chalklings toward weak points, then blocked them off inside lines of forbiddance. Then, with a smile, Fitch reached out and drew a jagged line of vigor like Harding had been doing. It shot across the room and hit the surprised inspector, throwing him backward. Harding hit the ground with a grunt. He groaned, then stood back up, drawing a circle of warding around himself, followed by a line of forbiddance in front of it. When did Harding become arithmetist? Joel thought, realizing the oddity for the first time. That line of warding is almost inhumanly perfect. 
and he drew it at a distance, with chalk on the end of his rifle. Fitch wasn't daunted. He expertly bounced two lines of vigor around Harding's front defending wall. Harding was forced to draw lines of forbiddance at his sides as well. Fitch then bounced a line of vigor off the wall Melody had drawn, hitting the back of Harding's defense. Wow, Joel said. Harding bellowed, then drew a line behind himself as well. Ha! Fitch yelled, just as the chalklings burst through his circle. Professor! Joel yelled. Fitch, however, stood up and leaped out of the circle as the chalklings piled into it. They hesitated, and Fitch quickly drew a line of forbiddance to block off the circle, trapping them inside his own defense. Then he rushed across the room and drew a line of forbiddance across the hallway to trap the chalklings there against Melody's line. Finally, he turned toward Harding. The man, whatever he was, stood with eyes shadowed. He no longer smiled, but simply waited. The creature knew that soon the chalklings would break free and attack again. Professor? Joel called softly, something occurring to him. It was a long shot, but... Fitch turned toward him. A clock, Joel said. Find a clock. Fitch frowned, but did as requested. He burst into one of the students' rooms, then came back out with a clock and held it toward Joel. What do I do with this? Break off the face, Joel said. Show the creature the gears inside. Fitch did so desperately prying off the front of the clock. He held it up, showing the gears. Harding shied back, dropping his rifle, raising his hands. Fitch approached, displaying the ticking gears, the winding springs, the spinning circles. Harding cried out, and in the light of the single lantern, Joel could see the creature's shadow begin to shake and twist. The shadow fuzzed, coming to look as if it were drawn in charcoal. By the depths, Fitch said. A forgotten. What the dusts is a forgotten, Joel said. A creature of Nebraska, Fitch said. They lead the wild chalklings, but how did one get all the way here? And attached to Harding? I wasn't aware that was possible. This is dire, Joel. I figured that last part out, Joel said. How do we kill it? Acid, Fitch said, proffering the clock. We need acid. Melody, let me out the back. But do it, Joel said. She reached back, dismissing the line. Joel dashed down the corridor and steps to where the second bucket of acid waited. He grabbed it, then ran back up the stairs. He rounded the hallway in the other direction, passing Nalazar on the ground and coming up behind Professor Fitch. Joel hesitated beside the professor. Nearby, the chalklings Fitch had trapped inside his defense burst out, swarming across the floor. Joel took a deep breath, then threw the acid toward Harding's feet. The acid washed away the line of forbiddance and the circle of warding, splashing across Harding's shadow. That dissolved as if it were made of charcoal, or chalk. Blackness melted into the acid. The inspector screamed, then collapsed to the ground. The chalklings froze in place. All fell silent. Joel waited, muscles tense, watching those chalklings. They continued to remain frozen. We beat him. We did it. My, my, Fitch said. He reached up to wipe his brow. I actually won a duel. That's the first time I've actually won. My hands barely shook.
You were fantastic, Professor, Joel said. Well, I don't know about that, but, well, after you children left, I just couldn't sleep, after how I treated you and all. And, um, here you'd been right so many times, and I sent you away without even listening. So I came out to find you, saw the soldiers at the front of the building here, and— He hesitated. I say, Fitch said, pointing. What is happening to them? Joel glanced at the chalklings. They were beginning to quiver even more furiously than normal. Then they began to expand. Uh-oh, Joel thought. Dismiss the lines boxing them in, quick! The other two gave him incredulous stares. Trust me, Joel said as the chalklings began to take shape. Fitch rushed over to his defense and began to release the chalklings he'd captured in small boxes. Melody gave Joel a you'd-better-know-what-you're-doing look, then bent down to release her lines. The first of the chalklings popped into three dimensions, forming the shape of the young woman Joel had seen taken earlier. Fitch exclaimed in surprise, then reached out with a second piece of chalk, releasing the chalklings more quickly before the people inside of them got squished by their confines. In minutes, Joel, Melody, and Fitch were surrounded by a group of dazed people. Some of them were students. Joel recognized Herman Leibel among the group. But many were older arithmetists, in their twenties, wearing the coats of graduates. Arithmetists from the fight at Nebraska. William? Melody asked, looking at one of the younger arithmetists, a man with red hair. Where the dust am I? the young man said. Mel? What the? Melody's brother trailed off as she grabbed him in an embrace. At that moment, Joel heard footsteps. A breathless Nalazar appeared around the corner, holding his chalk, still dripping slightly with acid. I will save, he began, then stopped short. Oh. Yeah, Joel said. Great timing, Professor. He sank down, exhausted, leaning back against a wall. Melody walked over, hands on hips. Worn out already? she asked with a smile, her confused brother trailing along behind her. Tragic, eh? Joel asked. Definitely. Rhythmatics Diagram Advanced Easton Defense It is quite informative to compare a basic Easton with one drawn by a more advanced arithmetist. Note that the Easton is itself a difficult defense to draw, so completing even the basic version under stress is considered an accomplishment. In this diagram, the outer circles have been strengthened with a Marx cross structure. This added stability allows the arithmetist to forego some of the inner lines of forbiddance, giving him or her more room to work. The left side of this figure is more defensive with more circles. A wise arithmetist will focus on opponents from the southeast first, where the defense is weaker but more open. The arithmetist has added a large number of defensive chalklings to the outside of the circle. This is an excellent way to capitalize on the Easton's huge number of bind points. Chapter 25 I suppose we owe an apology to Professor Nalazar, don't we? Professor York asked. Joel shrugged. I'd apologize to Exton first, sir. York chuckled, his mustache quivering. Already done, lad, already done. They stood outside Warding Hall, 
groups of people piling in for the melee. York had declared the campus open again after just one day of chaos following the Scribbler's defeat. The principal wanted to make a point that Armedius would continue undaunted. He had been certain to publicize not only the return of the missing students, but the dozens of arithmetists that lost at Nebraska. The media was having a frenzy with that. And not one, but two new arithmetic lines discovered, York said, hands behind his back, looking utterly pleased. Yeah, Joel said, a little noncommittal. York eyed him. I've sent letters to some of my friends who lead the other academies, Joel. Joel turned. I think that, in light of events, several of them can be persuaded to honor some of their contracts with your father. Armedius certainly will. It may not be the riches your father dreamed of, lad, but I'll see your mother's debts paid and learn some. We owe you and Professor Fitch. Joel grinned. Your gratitude will include a couple of good seats to the melee, won't it? They're set aside for you, son. Front row. Thanks. I believe that we are the ones who owe you thanks, York said. To the side, Joel noticed some men in very rich-looking suits approaching. One was Knight Senator Calloway. Ah, York said. If you'll excuse me, there are politicians who need to be entertained. Of course, sir, Joel said, and York withdrew. Joel stood for a long while, watching people enter the broad doors, filling the arena inside. Exton approached with Florence. The two of them seemed to argue a lot less frequently lately. Harding had been relieved of duty, but claimed he didn't remember anything of what had happened. Joel was inclined to believe the man. He'd seen the change that happened in Harding. The other authorities weren't as quick to understand. Apparently, a forgotten had never acted in this manner before. Joel was beginning to suspect that whatever happened to make rhythmatists in the Chamber of Inception could happen in Nebraska as well. That book he wasn't supposed to have read had said the Inception ceremony involved something called a shadow blaze. He'd seen one in the Chamber of Inception. He'd asked several other people who hadn't become rhythmatists, and none had seen one of the things. He already knew that the rhythmatists, Melody included, wouldn't speak of the experience. Joel wasn't certain why he had seen the shadow blaze or why he hadn't become arithmetist for it. But his experience hinted that the entire process of inception was far more complex than most people knew. Harding had no history at all of having rhythmatic abilities, and he could no longer produce lines. Whatever the forgotten had done to him, it had granted the ability. Was that what a shadow blaze did for someone during the inception? That left an uncomfortable knowledge in Joel. There was more than one way to become arithmetist. One of those ways involved something dark and murderous. Could there be other ways? It opened up hope again. He wasn't sure if that was a good thing or not. Joel, Exton said. The stout man hurried over and grabbed Joel's hand. Thank you so much, lad. Fitz told me how you continued to believe in me, even when they took me into custody. Harding almost had me convinced, Joel said. But some things just didn't make sense. The inspector must have planted the evidence against you when he was investigating the office. Exton nodded. Both Lily Whiting and Charles Calloway had identified Harding as the scribbler. Well, son, Exton said, 
You are a true friend. I mean it. Florence smiled. Does that mean you'll stop grumbling at him? I don't know about that, Exton said. Depends on if he's interrupting my work or not. And speaking of work, I have to adjudicate the melee. Goodness help us if I hadn't been released. Nobody else knows the rules to this blasted thing well enough to referee. The two of them moved on toward the auditorium. Joel continued to wait outside. Traditionally, the rhythmatists didn't come until most of the seats were filled, and this day was no exception. The students began to arrive, making their way through the doors, where Exton had them draw lots to determine where on the arena floor they, or if they wanted to work in a team, their group, would begin drawing. Hey, a voice said behind him. Joel smiled toward Melody. She wore her standard skirt and blouse, though this particular skirt was divided, and came down to her ankles to facilitate kneeling and drawing. She probably wore knee pads underneath. Come to see me get trounced, she asked. You did pretty well the other night against the Chalklings. Those lines barely held them, and you know it. Well, whatever happens today, Joel said, you helped rescue about thirty rhythmatists from the Scribbler. The winners of the competition will have to deal with the fact that while you were saving all sixty aisles, they were snoozing a few doors away. Good point, that, Melody agreed. Then she grimaced. What? Joel asked. She pointed toward a small group of people dressed in rhythmatic coats. Joel recognized her brother, William, among them. Parents? he asked. She nodded. They didn't look like terrible people. True, the mother had very well-styled hair and immaculate makeup, and the father an almost perfectly square jaw and a majestic stance, but... I think I see what you mean, Joel said. Hard to live up to their standards, eh? Yeah, Melody said. Trust me, it's better to be the son of a chalk maker. I'll keep that in mind. She sighed with an overly dramatic sound as her parents and brother entered through the doors.